Welcome to the Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a coalition of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. I'm Maeve Conran, the coalition's managing editor, and today we'll hear the sounds of the holiday season in Moab. And I, I like to sometimes ring it with the music that's playing. Yeah, so it's just something to do, you know. Then we'll pay a visit to the Folsom Trail in Salt Lake City. It's now in the proposal stage of daylighting the city creek that's covered in concrete below. Have you ever sat next to a creek, man? Just listen to the water go? It sounds wonderful. The fight for OBGYN access in Wyoming. Like this constant source of stress that just hovers over women's care, whether it ranges from, you know, dealing with your period to getting pregnant. And seed to plate, soil to sky, modern plant-based recipes using Native American ingredients. Helping to re-indigenize, revitalize, reclaim these ancestral foods for health and wellness. From Rocky Mountain Community Radio, it's the Regional Roundup. If you experienced an emergency in Moab and had nowhere else to turn, Moab Solutions is an organisation that can help. And about one third of the funding that Moab Solutions needs is raised in a few weeks by bell ringers. From Molly Marcello at KZMU, we'll hear now an audio portrait of longtime bell ringing volunteer Bruni Mason. One of the sounds of winter in Moab, the bell ringers at City Market. They're out there now until Christmas Eve, raising money for local organization Moab Solutions. If you had an emergency here and didn't have anywhere else to turn, Moab Solutions is the place that could help. Executive Director Sarah Melnikoff fields calls all year for emergency lodging, gas, food, medicine. About a third of the funding she needs to support these calls throughout the year is raised in the next few weeks by the bell ringers. It's a real community effort. And we spent time with longtime bell ringer Bruni Mason on one of the first shifts of the season for our latest audio portrait. Hey, hey. thank you so much. Merry Christmas. Bye-bye. My name is Bruni, Bruni Mason. But today is unusual because we have some... Overcast skies, it's gray skies. I have triple layers, I have long underwear. You know, it's just really, normally I don't dress this much, but I know standing here for an hour can get a little chilly, but but if you have enough clothes on and good warm shoes, that's a trick, and a hat. Hello. This year we have brand new bells that are actually solid. People know the sound, and I, I like to sometimes ring it with the music that's playing. Yeah, so it's just something to do, you know. Hello. Thank you so much. Kiss. I'll take a kiss. Hope you get one today yourself. Well, see, one of the reasons I like doing this is, I mean, I'm not a Christmas kind of person. But I, for me, the, well, thank you so much. Merry Christmas. The Christmas spirit, if there's any, I get it here. Because I see people 
come in. I have lived here over 20 years. I know a lot of people. I know who they are. Not pers I don't know them personally all the time, but I know who they are. There are people here that have a lot of money, and then there's a lot of people here that don't have that much money, and then there are people here that have no money. And you know what? They all put something in here. And it just, every time, it grabs me, you know. The people with money often just put a big check in there, done. And other people, the change out of their pocket from the pants. The kids from the high school and the middle school, when they come at lunch, they come back out with their sandwiches and then they throw the rest of their change in here. And they, they wish me well, <laughs> you know. I mean, kids, our kids, they're good people, you know. And that's what gives me the joy, to see everyone here. And as we get closer to Christmas, more and more people will give. It's amazing. It's totally, to me, you know, that, and it's everybody. It's, I love it, you know. Old people, young people, the well-to-do, the not-so-well-to-do, anybody gives something, you know. Hello. The cop has helped me almost more than anyone in the world. And they helped me survive. And this is all I actually have to my name until Social Security. <laughs> Thank you so much. And I'm doing that so I can have one of these you? and not feel guilty. So my Catholic... Catholic. That's what I mean, one penny. But he gave it to her. Even the homeless, can't they come here and give something to her? Because she helps them at times, you know, when things... And she helps the homeless in the winter to have a hotel room. She works with the hotels. If it gets really cold, we caught people freeze to death here. So she gets them rooms in the hotels and for the worst nights, you know. I mean, can you imagine you have no place to go in this weather when it gets really bad in January? Sarah helps the people that are at the bottom. Homeless, stranded, people that get let go from jail. They need help, and she's there for them. And this is easy. What I do is easy. You know, what she does is a whole other story. Just standing here, <laughs> ringing the bell and <laughs> smiling at people. And go, and they go, oh, you're, you're sacrificing your time. And I'm, yeah, the, this is easy, you know. Talk to Sarah sometime, what she has to do, you know. You know, just the satisfaction that you've done something and somebody had a, a benefit. If you've ever volunteered, the return is incredible. And I just love watching people looking what they're wearing. Yeah, it's just interesting. If you like people watching, this is the place to be because it's a constant. Oh, hello, come on. And you can see a photo of bell ringer Bruni Mason at kzmu.org. Seven Canyons Trust, in partnership with the Salt Lake City Redevelopment Agency, put on a design walk at the Folsom Trail in Salt Lake City. The trail was built in 2022 and is now in the proposal stage of daylighting the city creek that's covered in concrete below. KRCL Radioactive's Connor Estes 
attended the design walk to hear about the importance of the site and what the future holds for it. This story is part of the Ways of Water series. The Salt Lake Valley has a complex and troubled history with its seven creeks. To the east, the humbling Wasatch Mountains play a vital role in the life of humans that live here. During the winter, they accumulate great amounts of snow that gradually makes its way down. With industrialization and urbanization of the area, many of these seven creeks were coated with concrete and sent underground. These vital resources that supply water to over a million people are rarely seen by those people. In today's episode of Ways of Water, we go to downtown Salt Lake City, just west of the interstate and train tracks to where City Creek is buried. As of 2022, there is now the Folsom Trail. Currently, there is a project looking to daylight the buried City Creek along its path. It would uncover parts of the creek and restore aspects of it to the surface. This project is headed by Seven Canyons Trust in partnership with the Salt Lake City Redevelopment Agency. I had the opportunity to join them as well as folks from the general public on a design walk to discuss the potential plans moving forward for the site. Who am I with here walking on the Folsom Trail as we speak? Uh, this is Brian Tonetti, uh, Executive Director of the Seven Canyons Trust. So the Seven Canyons Trust is a nonprofit organization uh, that works to uncover and restore the buried and impaired creeks here in the Salt Lake Valley. So quickly, just like some background on the Folsom Corridor. It's an old rail corridor. The tracks were removed in about 2007, 2008, and the trail itself is sort of a recent development that was built in uh, the winter, December of 2021. And so that's kind of what you see on the ground here. Historically rail corridor, tracks removed, now just a trail. In 2020, Salt Lake City funded a daylighting feasibility study, which looked at the potential to uncover City Creek next to uh, the Folsom Trail. So basically rail corridor turned trail and creek corridor from roughly 7th West to 10th West. And so that's sort of the scope of what we're calling the City Creek at Folsom Trail daylighting design plan. In addition to that, the Seven Canyons Trust has a real desire to extend that creek both upstream, connecting it into uh, actually previous daylighting projects along North Temple, City Creek Park, Canyon Road, and then up into Memory Grove, all the way to um, the Davis County line, and then extending that downstream kind of on that final section of the um, proposed Folsom Trail corridor from 10th West and eventually connecting it into the Jordan River. The group walked the entirety of the project area from 8th West to 10th West, stopping in three areas of the project. We started in the plaza and moved to the natural and finished with the active area. We stopped in each to get a better understanding and idea of the proposed plans. Bradley Crossar of CRSA Architects led the walk in discussion. We're here on it's the, uh, the section that's kind of been branded the natural section. Um, it's from 8th West to 9th West. It's kind of with Jeremy Street running in the middle. So it's kind of two half blocks. The next section we're about to get to is a little bit more active. There's kind of more adjacent uses. Um, and the one we just came from, the plaza, is also kind of fits that bill. It's kind of meant to be more energetic. I have a little bit more inhabitation. This one is a little bit more about transiting. And so um, I think it will end up emphasizing the creek a little bit more by having fewer things to compete with it. Um, so the idea for this segment here is really just to have a path, uh, the daylighted creek, and then kind of dense tree plantings to make it as natural, uh, kind of a focus on the vegetation. I am here with someone that just did the walk. What was your name? Alvin. I just feel like the west side is so underdeveloped. And to see something like this happen on the west side, I think is really important. You know, this is a pretty industrial space. I guess it always kind of has been. 
but now there's all these apartments coming in surrounding this area and I, I think it's beneficial. I feel like this daylighting this creek is very modern. I feel like there's other cities that are, you know, Denver. We talked about that on our walk is Denver has a huge river and a creek and like a big river walk going through it. It's basically downtown Denver, you know, and uh, not that this, this is nowhere near that, but the concept and the idea I think is the same in the sense of, you know, taking this waterway and making it accessible to people because water... Have you ever sat next to a creek, man? Just listen to the water go? It sounds wonderful. It's just so relaxing. Everything goes according to plan, which I know these are probably... There's probably so much work behind the scenes to get a project like this up and off the ground, but the project gets finished. What, what are your hopes? Once it's finished, it's established, what are your hopes for, for this space? I think first and foremost like a space to connect with city creek a creek that pre-urbanization was really like our still to this day it's now in the canyon but previously you know a drinking water source uh, a source that really allowed life in this valley you know it was the a spot where you know native folks tribes would gather hunt um you know fish so it was a, a, a form of sustenance. It was an area where, you know, the, the Mormon settlers were, were drawn to and, you know, utilized to allow the, what we see today, the city to sort of grow out of, you know, this, this desert, really. So a place to, to really connect with City Creek, um, a place to, you know, cherish and connect with and, and really be proud of. In my short walk along the Folsom Trail area, I feel inspired about the potential of this space. I imagine the city creek below, listening to our conversations, eager to see daylight again after years of darkness, desiring to connect again with people who will listen to its flow, who will appreciate its crucial role in this area. I'm Connor Estes with Radioactive, and this has been another episode of Ways of Water. Thanks for listening. You're listening to the Regional Roundup from Rocky Mountain Community Radio. I'm Maeve Conran. This fall, access to women's health care in Jackson, Wyoming, got a jolt. The Women's Health and Family Care Clinic announced that it's closing, citing rising costs as the region experiences a crisis of affordability. It's the second women's health centre to close this year in Jackson, leaving just one major OBGYN clinic left in town. Some doctors say they plan to resume services in the new year, but it leaves a gap. The Women's Health and Family Care Clinic was also the only abortion provider for a large swath of the Mountain West. With Wyoming's abortion bans being challenged in the courts, there are real questions about the future of reproductive care in Teton County and Wyoming. Several women have reached out to KHOL's Jackson Hole Community Radio about how they're feeling right now on the state of care in Jackson. When I was diagnosed with cervical cancer, it was in March of 2022. And then just a few short months later, they actually closed their doors. Women's health is now so crucial for me after my diagnosis. And then it just really takes you down this rabbit hole of like, okay, well, what does accessible health in general look like here in Jackson? And so you kind of start to spiral about like, is this the right place for us to stay forever, to start a family, to grow old together? I am currently 30 weeks pregnant. 
and I'm due to deliver at the end of January. It was like several weeks of extraordinary stress and worry. And in that window, I started doing like a lot of research about the OB care options in Wyoming to figure out where else I could go. I considered going to Lander. I considered other places like Riverton. Would would it be worth that kind of drive if, you know, my choice was between Idaho Falls and Lander? Which would I pick? I'm still grappling with the news. I'm sure there are other women like me who are like, well, wait, now what? And what do we do? So for the relative size of our town, I think we have a decent support system or did. But yeah, it's still a small pool. And when you first find out that you're pregnant, you're looking for the right person. And you don't want just anyone. You want to go with someone that like sees your vision. And now that we're, we've reduced our options, I think it's going to be very limiting for women. And I don't even think it was that broad prior. When I heard about this, I like, I just like started crying. I just felt like really heartbroken for, for all the women in Jackson and for so many women that work in the hospitality industry that don't have health insurance and, you know, they just don't have the means to pay for their visits. I'm just worried that a lot of my peers won't have their annual pap smears and won't be screened for HPV or cancer. Also like I need my IUD taken out and I can't get in, or I'd like to go on birth control, but I can't get in to see anyone. Amongst my female friends, we talk about OB and gynecological care all the time. Like I'm in a book club with some women and we usually talk about our access to gynecological and OB care. It's just like this constant source of stress that just hovers over women's care, whether it ranges from, you know, dealing with your period to getting pregnant. It's difficult when you have to continuously keep moving around appointments or keep moving doctors and you're not able to establish relationships. I hate to say that I don't have hope, but I don't have a ton of hope. Obviously, women's health care is kind of under attack right now in a number of different places. It's a big force with, you know, people trying to determine what we should and shouldn't be doing with our bodies and what health care is available. And then also, you know, with the rising costs of just being able to operate in the community. It's more than just the checkup. It's it's more than like the physical act of getting your annual or, you know, delivering your baby. It's like emotional, spiritual, physical support. What we need to do as a community is just like come together and put these resources out there because I don't think that women's health is a lost cause in this town. I just think that we need more encouragement and just to have these resources made available to everyone. Teton County residents Jennifer Dant, Ryan May Handy, Jessica Baker and Michelle Lassell discussing the lack of women's health care options in Teton County, Wyoming, following the shuttering of two providers this year. That audio postcard was produced by Hannah Mersbach, who's been covering the closures. We'll round out today's show with a look at a new cookbook, Seed to Plate, Soil to Sky, Modern Plant-Based Recipes Using Native American Ingredients. KVNF's Taya Jay spoke with the authors, chefs Lois Frank and Walter Whitewater. I want to talk a little bit about what you refer to as the magic eight corns, beans, squash, chilies, tomatoes, potatoes, vanilla, and cacao. 
you identify and you talk about in the book that prior to 1492, these plants existed only in the Americas. And it's really fascinating for me as a reader to think about these ingredients that are quote unquote staples in places like Ireland or Italy, potatoes and tomatoes didn't exist prior to first contact. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah. You know, we really no longer credit Columbus with discovering America, but I do still give credit to Columbus with facilitating what we call the Columbian exchange. So bringing ingredients from one area to another, and then those ingredients spreading and weaving themselves, fusing themselves into the cuisines on a global level. And that's the magic eight. We can deconstruct that. The Italians didn't have the tomato. The Irish didn't have the potato. Britain had fish and no chips, you know, and that's a big part of their, who they are, their identity. You know, no chilies in Asian cuisine, East Indian cuisine, African cuisine. So the world was a different place. And these foods, these indigenous American foods became a part of these cuisines. And now they're inseparable with that identity. How could you take tomatoes out of Italian food or potatoes out of Irish food? You can't. It's in there. And that to me is a fascinating history, a fascinating story. And a super important conversation to be having right now. I think I think it was in the foreword that the author writes about decolonizing our diets. And I thought that that was a really interesting way of looking at it as well. And part of that starts with understanding this knowledge. You also talk about these four distinct periods that make up the timeline of Native American cuisine. Will you talk about those four a little bit? Yeah. So we have the the pre-contact and some chefs are calling it the pre-colonial. I like to say pre-contact because Native people had contact with each other and there were definitely trade routes where they were trading and exchanging their own ingredients in, in the Americas. You know, scientists at University of New Mexico found vessels in Chaco Canyon. In the vessels was theobromine. Theobromine is the marker for chocolate. That was radiocarbon dated at 1,500 years old. And so we know that chocolate was in Chaco Canyon a long time ago. So these trade routes intact and, and very diverse. So Native people were constantly trading. So what else was in that pre-contact period? Wild game, lots of the wild plants, wild herbs, the cultivars, corn, beans, and squash, also called with some tribes, three sisters. That's not a metaphor with every tribe, but it is a metaphor now with a lot of tribes. And all of these different nuts and plants and roots. And so those were there. And then, you know, first contact. So as these magic eight make their way to Europe and other parts of the world, Ingredients from Europe and other parts of the world come here. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest and most profound, the domesticated animals and their byproducts, mm-hmm. right? So there was prior to European contact, no butter, no cheese, no yogurt, no dairy. So pre-contact, first contact. And then in the case of Native people, we see the government issue period. So we see, you know, a very problematic part of U.S. history. We see a very traumatic history. We see the Trail of Tears 
with the Cherokee and other tribes. We see Walter's tribe with the long walk. I think every tribe has a story of mm-hmm. its own trail of tears, its own long walk, being forced away from their homelands or their homelands being shrunk, losing hunting base, losing planting base, losing fishing bases. And, you know, with that, food is affected, right? How do you control a population? Through food. And so people were relocated and the government issued these rations, these beginning of the commodity food period era. And so lard, flour, sugar, coffee, and canned meats like Spam were issued and fry bread is born and the Indian taco is born. And, you know, I really do credit the indigenous ancestors with making food for survival and uh, being able to survive. But, you know, that was a very hard, difficult, painful part of U.S. history. So we call that the government issue. And then where we are now is the most exciting This reclaiming, re-indigenizing, Walter and I like to call it going back to the past to move forward to the future, understanding what happened, and then letting each community decide what's on their plate, uh, what's on their table. And so what we like to do, we like to make the food taste good and be beautiful and take out some of the unhealthy introduced ingredients and keep them very simple and healthy. And it does seem to me like, Walter, the presentation is an important piece for you. Will you talk a little bit more about that? You mentioned that in your introduction, but that idea of the photograph or the plate, the plating the plate with intention, the beauty in the presentation. Speak to that a little bit, if you will. I want my food to look pretty. I want to represent my people, the native people, Nall Nation and who we are, where we're coming from, because, you know, back in the days, you don't see pictures, and mostly all would be black and white. And so that was a huge concern because the elders wanted to look at the picture of the book, what, how it's going to look. I think that's what really launched me to where and to how can we make our food pretty, make beautiful, not only that, to make it taste good to make it balanced instead of overpowering whatever it is, I want you to be able to taste that salmon or whatever it is instead of smother with other stuff too. I think that's what was the most important thing that I wanted to to show and just something that I wanted to share. And and that's that's my huge vision to this day is I wanted to make the plate look um, beautiful I wanted to approach someone to be able to appreciate that that food, where it's coming, how it's being picked, the four-legged being put down in in a sacred way, and then tell a story. And then there's a song that goes with it. You know, there's teaching. There's a thing involved, what my people went through. And what happened is, what did we left behind? I think that's where we're at today. We're trying to, what we left behind is go back to how the food was being prepared. The old people used to die like over a hundred. Up there now, we don't hear that anymore. Our elders are going before that. The kids are, you know, it's, it's not only drugs. It's not only alcohol. It's the food too. So that's my, my way of um, 
making it look beautiful and, you know, sing to it. I, when I make a, whatever it is, I'll be singing to, to that song. And there's even a, there's a fried bread song out there, you know. They, that song, they brought it back into a ceremony mm. for use. Chefs Lois Frank and Walter Whitewater speaking about their new book, Seed to Plate, Soil to Sky, Modern Plant-Based Recipes Using Native American Ingredients. They were speaking with KVNF's Taya J on The Pen and the Sword. And you can find the full interview at kvnf.org. You've been listening to The Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a network of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. Thanks to Molly Marcello at KZMU, Connor Estes at KRCL, Hannah Mersbach at KHOL and Taya J at KVNF for today's show. Our theme music is Take Me Somewhere by Joel Adam Russell. I'm Maeve Conran. Thanks for listening.